Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161CK162, Deconstruction 2 Period, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 272, August the 7th, 1992. We have with us one of our staff members, Sam Blumenfeld, who is outstanding in the field of homeschooling and education generally. Also, Douglas Murray, Mark Rushdooney, Karen Grasmuck, and Darlene Rushdooney. Now, I think it is apparent from our previous hour of discussion that uh, modern education being deconstructionist has as its goal the destruction of everything that constitutes Christian civilization. It's total destruction. It's total elimination. I believe, moreover, as Christians we can say that deconstruction is a consistent application of the tempter's program to Adam and Eve, that if they followed him, he promised, ye shall be as God, every man his own God, knowing, determining for yourself what is good and evil. So what deconstruction says is that every man creates his own reality, his own law, his own values. It is the logical conclusion of the tempter's program. That's why it is so deadly. That is why it is such a monstrous evil that church people send their children to state schools to be subjected to that principle which is the essence of original sin. So, with that in mind, now, uh, Douglas, did you have some more questions that you wanted to ask? Well, the, uh, I'm just wondering, what, uh, Sam, what posture do you think that the, uh, uh, the, uh, Christian school movement should take in regards to federal money and whether or not they should go promotional or stay low-key. Before I answer that, let me simply say that the antidote to deconstruction is reconstruction, Christian reconstruction. Well, now, about uh, the Christian schools, should they take money from the federal government? Obviously not. Uh, the voucher program, the voucher initiative, as a matter of fact, there's one in California uh, right now, uh, is a Trojan horse. It's a trap for the private schools, for the Christian schools, because uh, once you accept uh, government money, you're going to have to accept government regulation. And obviously what will happen is that the government will simply take over the private schools and in a very short period of time, they will become just as bad as the public schools. Because, first of all, you're not going to get a voucher program without the consent 
of the establishment, without the consent of the NEA, without their input, in other words, because they'll never permit it. Uh, they'll fight a tooth and nail. But if they decide to, uh, you know, uh, rather than to fight it, to join it, then of course what they will do is take it over, because they've got the power to do that in the state legislatures of America. The result will be the eventual destruction of private, of private education, of educational freedom. So I have been um, uh, trying to awaken Christians to this danger, and unfortunately the uh, major Christian li uh, leadership is gung-ho for these voucher systems. I mean, you just name the particular Christian leader on, who has a wide television audience or, uh, or uh, who has a, a great direct mail operation, and you will see they're all for, uh, for uh, vouchers. Uh, we often hear that there's a fine solution to the church-state problem in Europe in that the churches are commonly established churches and they receive state funds so that everybody's uh, tax money goes up to a point. Uh, in some countries, a full tithe to the church. But there's a trap there. Once you're getting that money, you're not going to raise any objections to what the state does. So, what the state does in one country, for example, I know, and it, there are forms of this elsewhere, you uh, are given a tax break for what is taken from you to go to the church. However, if you are a member of the church, you lose the tax break, or most of it. So if you're a practicing Lutheran or a practicing Catholic or a practicing whatever, you're going to pay a price, which means a lot of the people won't uh, function as members, and they drop out. In another European country, since everyone has to pay uh, through their taxes for the support of the church, everyone has a vote in calling the priest or pastor or naming any church board that controls the building or the premises. In one country in particular, most of the officials elected to govern the local church are Marxists. So the church is in the hands of the Marxists. I have been told that in some communities no one goes to the church service except the family of the uh, rector or the priest's mother or someone like that. But the Marxists will use the facility all week long for their meetings. So whenever you take state funds, you're going to have to take state controls. Would you say that the, because of the Christian Reconstruction Movement, that the counter-revolution has begun as a re result of Christian Reconstruction? 
Well, it has begun to some extent. In other words, uh, particularly among the homeschoolers, uh, you have to realize that the homeschooler represents a, a a dramatic and radical break with the status norms, with the humanist status norms of our society, with those institutions. And it did take a considerable amount of courage to make that break uh, because it does entail some harassment. You know, the homeschoolers are not being left entirely alone by the state. They, there are all sorts of squabbles going on, all sorts of parents being dragged into court. As a matter of fact, Rush and I have been witnesses of some of these uh, trials where homeschoolers have had to um, bear tremendous expenses, court expenses, in trying to just defend their freedom to educate their children as they see fit. I believe that the struggle should be for educational freedom, not for government money, you see. That's what I'm trying to teach these people, is that what we should be after is getting the government out of the education system totally out of the education system and making it a totally private system. Uh, there's no reason why the government should be in, in the education system at all. I think this would be a good time for uh, Mark and Darlene to talk about their trip last weekend because they were involved in the uh, uh, visit to and speaking at a revolutionary movement under the influence of a strong and able Reconstructionist, Dr. Ellsworth McIntyre in Naples, Florida. Do you want to tell us what he's doing? Well, Dr. McIntyre has, in his past, he's run Christian schools, and he approaches it um, as a business, and he's a, he's a good businessman. And he saw an, an opening in the preschool movement uh, and, he, and he saw a window of opportunity there. So he approached the preschool on a uh, business-like basis and he charges $10 less a week than other preschools. He takes children as low as age two and he teaches two to five-year-olds phonics and he teaches them to read and he studied the regulations which he says are pretty common some of them are acted into law and some of them are but they're, they're fairly common from state to state and he studies these regulations and he's designed his his building and his facilities to uh, make the for instance the student to adult ratio as uh, as uh, less of a problem as possible. Some schools, assuming they're not going to make a profit, go into the preschool cooperative where parents are required to come in. And of course, as anybody who's been in a private school knows, having parents come into the classroom can be as disturbing uh, as any child can be. Uh, because they don't know the routine, and so they don't always fit in too well. You have to really train somebody on what they have to be, and a part-time uh, individual in the classroom doesn't always work. But he makes a profit at this, and he's creating a, a body of children 
probably five to six hundred students in the, this suburban area uh, who can be fed into Christian schools. And uh, he's doing a remarkable thing there, and his schools are making profits. He wouldn't need to think about vouchers. One of the problems with vouchers is so many schools are losing money, especially in, even in metropolitan areas. Many of them are losing money uh, because they uh, people who are in Christian work always think, well, we're doing the Christian work, and if it's Christian, therefore, that's the only important thing. And they're not trained in business. They've gone to a Bible college or something, but they know nothing about business, so they don't know how to operate from a business-like perspective. So the schools always lose money. And that's one of the reasons I think a lot of Christian educators are just tired of fighting with budgets. And they're just willing to say, you know, I want the voucher. I, let's let's take the money. Of course, what once you, if you take state money, you're a public school. No matter what the name is on the sign out front, you're going to become a public school shortly. And that's going to force uh, schools that don't take the vouchers may get forced out of business unless they can turn a profit without it. But it's going to be very hard to tell parents, well, we don't take those vouchers. Mm -hmm. They're going to take them somewhere else. So this is a, an insidious way of destroying anyone who will not accept government funds and the eventual government regulations. If that's not enough to put them out of business, all the new schools that pop up with guaranteed enrollment, if you offer something, $2,600, I believe, a year is a good tuition. So they're building the tuition costs around public education costs and inflated costs, and people are looking at that and says they'll they'll, they'll start their own schools. They'll start schools to get this, the state vouchers. Mm -hmm. So it's going to completely revolutionize who goes to these schools, who wants to go to a so-called private school. People who had no interest out of their own pocket will now say yes. They'll come knocking on your door. And after a few months, once you get all these parents with vouchers, you can't say no. If you start saying no, there's too many regulations, no more vouchers, you know, you'll face insolvency overnight. Your whole budget will be based upon these parents who will only go there if you accept their vouchers. So okay. it's a very insidious way. And it's all based upon the idea that Christians really don't know how to run things on business-like operations because they approach it, well, if we're Christian and we're teaching them the right things, then we're doing our job. Has Dr. McIntyre considered franchising his operation so that he can give people a blueprint so that they can operate successfully? He has. He got a little discouraged because he found that he couldn't find Christian Reconstructionists who were really interested, and a lot of them were interested in learning about what he was doing, he said, but they all wanted to be taught something, they wanted to learn but none of them were interested in actually getting in and investing money in, a, in it and actually doing it. And he didn't want, doesn't want to just go give it to uh, uh, these, you know, wishy-washy Christian groups uh, because he doesn't really want them doing something on a profit-making basis. He doesn't really approve of the way they do things or what they're teaching the children from a religious perspective. So he really... Uh, 
as of now, he's really not interested in, in franchising the idea. Has he given any Though he's willing to encourage others to go into it. Okay, but has he given any thought to writing a book or providing some sort of a game plan for yes. people who want to get into it? Yes, I asked him about that, and he is talking about writing uh, an operations manual. He's also planning to start a school beginning with fourth grade because his children are ready for the fourth grade when they finish, and then subsequently a high school. It was very exciting to see this preschool, um, two to five-year-olds. Everything is organized and very structured, and they said when people first come, they sometimes get comments that uh, it's too structured for such young children. But the children are obviously excited about this program. It's very, it was very interesting. Because I've worked with kindergartners, but it was very interesting to see these young children. You could see 50 preschoolers in a group with two adults in the room. One was doing the teacher, the other was going around, you know, encouraging the children. But about 50 children, two adults, they were all in their chairs, they were all involved in some activity. Everything structured. Even the playtime is organized. The children... Uh, so it's exactly the opposite of the yes. deconstruction. They were, they were being taught constantly, and they were constantly being giving input. This is how you do things. This is what we're doing. This is what we're going to do now. And uh, they found that when they did have free playtime, for instance, at the beginning of the day, and they had toys, and they came, and they could play. Found the children were arguing and fighting over the toys. Oh, yes. So they changed it so everything's structured and everything's organized. Yes, there was a program the other night on 2020 about uh, daycare. Yes. I, I assume that you saw that, Douglas, in which they showed incredible confusion. Kids just pummeling one another. It was just a, a madhouse, chaos, and... Uh, uh, the idea that uh, they really need structure in order to have a sense of order in that. Sometimes we'll get we'll get parents who will call us and say, "So, you know, I'm interested in putting my child in, in your kindergarten. I think they're ready for it. They've been in preschool for two years." I say, "Oh no." <laughs> I, yeah, I think to myself, that's really not much of a recommendation that they might be ready for kindergarten because our kindergartners sit still and they sit in the chair and they learn. And when you send a child to what they call school, preschool, and they play and all day, uh, that doesn't train them for school. It doesn't really train them for anything. For me, it's really exciting to think about Dr. McIntyre's schools. When I think of the eagerness that the children display uh, to learn, the eagerness to learn, their excitement at learning. It also delights me that these children go home and they're so used to a Christian context, even though many of them are from non-Christian homes, that uh, they insist on prayer at mealtime. They learn the Ten Commandments with... Uh, some interesting repercussions because they recite them proudly and it has shamed uh, three or four couples uh, into getting married <laughs> 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 so 
it's a remarkable work he's doing. And uh, and the parents don't come there because it's Christian. I mean, they've yeah. they read their parents' names in the newspapers being arrested in, in the drug trade, which is very big in Florida because uh-huh. of the coastline and the uh, such. But um, they're cheaper than the other preschools. And, and they teach, teach them to read. They teach them how to read music, which they find is more valuable, and the parents appreciate it more than to try to teach them a, a second language, for instance. Mm-hmm. And so the parents come there for what they offer. Uh, 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. Sounds like a remarkable achievement. It but is. They save money. They don't have to buy the kids a bulletproof vest yes. like if they went to public school. <laughs> but when you think about it, that's it tells you something about you know where the church has gone wrong because if we're going to have Christian reconstruction, we can't always be welfare recipients. Yeah. Christian reconstruction mm-hmm. ideas and movements have to try to pay their own way. Absolutely. If they pay their own way and they're in the uh, black, so to speak, they can expand their realm of influence. They can expand their operations. If they're always begging for money to meet expenses, which is what they're used to doing, and they often assume that's how we have to operate, then they're always just struggling along to maintain. Well, that's a good point. And it's a bad object lesson to take money from the government. It uh, teaches a kid the wrong thing. So Christians need to understand business better than they do, and that's that's a real fault. I'm wondering, aren't there courses for Christians on economics, on sound business practices, that sort of thing? No. Mm-mm. No seminary has any course which even remotely touches on economics. And yet economics is really the godly use of resources. You don't get that from an MBA at Harvard. No, they don't. No, they don't. Well, that's unfortunate because if they knew economics and if they knew business practice, Mm -hmm. many of them could probably begin to make a profit, you know. That's why I'd like to see Ian Hodge of Australia here because he is a superb uh, economist, yeah, yeah. and he would be very, very effective in teaching uh, uh, the clergy common sense economics. Well, that, that was going to be my next question, Sam, was uh, how should parents evaluate a Christian school prior to enrolling their children? And I think Mark answered the question. Ask for a copy of their balance sheet and find out if they're making money. Well, that's certainly that's one, one thing they should do. Another thing they might do is read uh, Rush's book on the uh, Christian curriculum, the curriculum in the Christian school, the philosophy of the Christian curriculum, and to see what the school actually offers. You know, uh, there are all sorts of Christian schools. Uh, some are better than others. Some try to uh, pander to the uh, current trends. Uh, some have dress codes. Others let the kids dress the way their friends do. So you've got to really be careful. You've got to know what you're buying when you go to a Christian school. Is that book still in print? Is it still available? Yes. You know, the philosophy of the Christian curriculum. And it's very useful in giving you guidelines on, as to what to look for uh, in a Christian school. 
Does that answer your question? Yes. <laughs> the book is available from Cal Seedon, I take it? Uh, Ross House Books. Ross House Books. Incidentally, what is the price of that book? Uh, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're a heck of a salesman. <laughs> <laughs> now, but it's an extremely useful book. If you're going to... Uh, uh, if you're going to uh, put your child in a Christian school and you want to know what they're doing, whether it's right or wrong, then I would certainly first read that book and get an idea of what to look for. You know, I was just thinking, uh, we had breakfast and you were telling us about the, the routine at uh, Dr. McIntyre's school, and uh, then I, Sam and I saw this thing in 2020 the other night with this day school. It just looked like a zoo that was out of control. Yes. It would be it would be fun to have a videotape of what goes on at the Christian school yeah, in Florida right. alongside right. what goes on. I mean, people would get the message very quickly. Well, if somebody would subsidize us, we'd like to turn John Upton loose to go around the country to make half-hour documentaries of a variety of things, such as Dr. McIntyre's school, uh, the Mexico uh, mission, and a good deal more that is being done by Reconstructionists. It would be an ideal way of uh, getting people to see these things. One of the things, if somebody would provide the subsidy, uh, we'd like to have John do is to produce one documentary a month. We have uh, over 80 television stations that are eager to show them. Uh, incidentally, uh, speaking of videos, uh, when I was in Australia, I gave a, a, a six-hour uh, seminar on how to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic at, in Adelaide. And they made a video of it and boiled it down to an, uh, to an hour video which my publisher will make available pretty soon. So, mm -hmm. And I think it's a very good one. So I've seen it myself, very professionally done mm -hmm. in Australia. And my publisher will have it ready uh, pretty soon. Great. Was I have a question. Sure. Uh, every once in a while we hear a, a new term pops up and, and you kind of get what's popular <laughs> amongst educators by parents coming to you and, and saying what the technical term for the child's problem is. And a few years ago it was dyslexia is everything. Yeah. The latest thing is attention deficit disorder. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, which, which basically means my child doesn't pay attention in yeah. class. But could you comment on this? Because very often I'll have a parent who will come to me and they'll say, well, my child's having a little bit of a problem. I think I'm going to take them down to the public school or to someone and I want to have them tested. And if they're going to the public school, I always tell them they're going to find something. Of course. And it's going to have a fancy name to it. Mm -hmm. Yes. And they're going to tell you that they have a program. You need yeah. to tell those parents that anybody who talks like that is a phony. Yes. <laughs> Could you comment on attention deficit disorder yeah. and some of these other terms that they like to throw at parents yes. in a way to impress them with the fact that if they've identified the problem in, as though they have the solution. Well, the attention deficit disorder is, is caused by subjecting children to things that they don't want to pay attention to. You see, the current methods of teaching reading are comparable to a 
non-surgical prefrontal lobotomy. <laughs> now nobody, nobody is going to sit still while their brain is being destroyed. Mm-hmm. And so kids act up naturally. I mean, you wouldn't sit in school if you knew that something terrible was being done to your intelligence. And the children know this because they're very keen. They came to school feeling very intelligent. They taught themselves to speak their own language and suddenly they're in school and find out that they're not as intelligent as they thought they were. They're dumb. They're not learning. They can't learn to read. They know something is being done to them and so they act up and it's called attention deficit disorder. Now how do these schools deal with it? They simply drug the kids. Nowadays Ritalin is used throughout America uh, in, you know, every school system in the United States now has kids on Ritalin. They just drug the kids turn them into little zombies so that they will sit there in their seats and take whatever is dished out to them. If they were teaching the children to read in a a sane way, you would not have attention deficit disorder. You mean they're spiking the milk and graham crackers? (laughs) (laughs) No, these are pills. You know, the Ritalin is just just pills. And uh, they're very powerful pills, incidentally. So they're turning these kids into drug addicts. Do parents know about this? Of course they do. They have to sign a paper to get these kids on on, uh, this medication. So that's the solution of the behavioral psychologists, you know, drugs. It's always been their, their, uh, their, you know, their solution for behavioral problems is to Mm -hmm. use a drug, you know. When I started school in the 20s, a classroom of 40 and 45 was routine in the public schools, and no teacher had a problem in handling them. If you looked in at uh, Catholic parochial schools, 60 was commonplace, and uh, none of the children ever looked uh, even cross-eyed at anyone else for fear of the non-teacher. Now they have them down to 18 and they cannot handle them and have to drug them. And of course it's because of a failure to have a sound philosophy of education. It is a failure of parenting. It is a failure on every level. And the child is growing up to be a monster. I think it should be obvious by this time how critical the crisis is that has come to focus in education. Children are the future of any society, of any civilization. This is why the children of our time are the target of deconstruction. It's a philosophical concept. You get it only on the upper division level at universities and the graduate level. But in practice, it comes down to the kindergarten. It deals with a child on every level because it means control of the future. How else are you going to destroy Christian civilization if you do not begin with the child who is the future? Uh, Let me uh, read to you a description of how they teach reading by Professor Kenneth Goodman, who is the professor of language, reading, and culture at Arizona University, is considered probably 
the most prominent advocate of whole language. He writes, quote, whole language classrooms liberate pupils to try new things, to invent spellings, to experiment with a new genre, to guess at meanings, uh, at meanings in their reading, or to read and write imperfectly. Our research on reading and writing has strongly supported the importance of error in language development. <laughs> Miscues represent the tension between invention and convention in reading. In whole language classrooms, uh, risk-taking is not simply tolerated, it is celebrated. Learners have always been free to fail, unquote. So in other words, they, they, they encourage mistakes, uh, inaccurate reading, what they call risk-taking. Risk-taking is simply guessing. So they're encouraging the kids to guess, you see. My father would have described that as somebody who's trying to cover up when he doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, well, these people yes. know what they're doing, you see. They know what they're doing, and they know what the results are, because he said, uh, Kenneth Goodman writes, he was the one, incidentally, who defined reading as a psycholinguistic guessing game. <laughs> And he writes, quote, In my research, I found readers anticipating what was coming. They predicted grammatical patterns. They reworded the text. They inserted, omitted, substituted, and changed the word sequence. Sometimes they lost themselves in the process, but often they produced sensible text readings that differed in remarkable ways from an, an expected reading, unquote. Now, what he is describing is a disabled reader, somebody we call dyslexic. But to him, that's wonderful. This is the way you're supposed to read. You're supposed to read like a dyslexic, you see. But they don't. They no longer call those kids dyslexics. They just call them normal readers. They're deconstructionist readers, but that's okay. And um, uh, so we're getting people who, are, who really believe in this stuff and, and uh, preach it, and uh, for example, uh, one of the one of the whole language teachers writes, uh, a focus on decoding and pronunciation may lead to the idea that correct oral performance is the goal of reading, rather than understanding the text and minimize the amount of risk taking attempted. So they discourage us, you know, decoding and sounding out because that's going to lead to correct oral performance. <laughs> that's what we're dealing with. I mean, isn't this insanity? Isn't this truly insane? And yet, they're getting away with it. Well, from our perspective, it is. But, you know, if you go into an insane asylum, they're all sane. You know, from well, that that's true, where the, you know, they're, well... We've got the inmates running, running, the, the running the asylum. But uh, to give you an idea of what they know what they're doing, here's another uh, uh, quote from an article in a book called The Whole Language Catalog. It's a big book with articles of all sorts written by whole language teachers. And two of the teachers, Bess Altwerger and Barbara Flores, write in an article entitled The Politics of Whole Language. The politics of whole do the ABCs have politics or there the politics of the ABCs? Well, anyway, they write quote whole language puts powerful learning, decision making, and problem solving back into the hands of teachers and students. 
it creates active learners it empowers all of us to act upon and transform our environments and society in general we are not just asking for a change in the teaching of reading but a radical change in the social and political structure of schooling and society unquote. well how much clearer can they be I mean you know this is they're telling you exactly what they're doing it's their agenda yeah you know they want to change the social and political structure of schooling and society and what the kind of change they want is socialism because if you read the whole language catalog you'll see it's totally skewed to the left totally skewed that way and uh, you know but and that's our education system it is now the complete captive of the radical left in this country so if you think that Marxism is dead you're mistaken well they don't call it Marxism anymore socialism is a lot of other things too it's environmentalism it's as a matter of fact the environmental movement is now the you might say is the new vehicle uh, but uh, it's still socialism it's still the destruction and particularly the destruction of Christianity universities were started by uh, religious orders where did they go wrong where did they lose control well you know Harvard lost control because it went Unitarian it rejected uh, Calvinism uh, and uh, then went into liberalism and then finally wound up uh, Unitarian and then they kicked out the uh, the uh, Calvinists so Harvard really set the uh, the stage for the whole humanist revolution as a matter of fact if you want to trace the humanist revolution to its roots it goes back to Unitarianism in fact uh, it was uh, Unitarian ministers who wrote the first uh, humanist manifesto mm -hmm. young humanist uh, uh, ministers and uh, so humanism was considered a religion by them uh, in complete uh, harmony with Unitarian principles now the second humanist uh, manifesto is more atheistic in other words a, a schism or a, a conflict developed among humanists between the atheists who want nothing to do that, with anything that suggests religion at all and those humanists who believe that humanism is a religion now it's firmly in the hands of the atheists of uh, Paul Kurtz and that whole group who uh, consider themselves total secularists scientifically oriented you know pure humanists uh, and what has happened though of course is that man is a spiritual being he must have some some relationship to some higher power and so you've got a lot of people now going in for the new age religions you see they don't want Christianity because that will interfere with their wonderful lifestyles you see sin is now considered an alternate lifestyle you know you don't call it sin anymore you call it an alternate lifestyle <laughs> and uh, so alternate lifestyles are uh, are, are now being uh, enjoyed with the benefit of, of paganism as a matter of fact paganism is a kind of you might say designer religion you know you can design your own religion now just as you have designer genes and designer cuisine now you're going to design a religion to suit your lifestyle you see they become masters of rationalization yeah yeah but uh, that's where we're going that's where we're it's designer everything now I, 
Uh, oh, it's been 25 to 30 years ago that I was at a dinner on St. Patrick's Day and uh, everything, including the pasta, had been dyed green. It was... <laughs> <laughs> so why not designer religion, designer foods, everything? Designer morality? Yes, designer morality. Make it up as you go. Yes. And that's part of the deconstructionist yes. movement, you see. But if they put it in terms that fit with today's trends and today's fashions, you see. What's fashionable in religion, you see. Uh, Shirley MacLaine is fashionable right mm -hmm. now. And, uh, and there's even a design of Christianity now. You know, with with Christian rock music and and all sorts of things to try to make Christianity more acceptable to the uh, to the culture, to the uh, to the young. You see, rather than accepted as it really is, being packaged like showbiz. That's it. The packaging is so important these days. I was uh, a speaker at a conference once here in California. At a large church, which was more like a college campus, it was such an immense thing. They had umpteen choirs, and the uh, full-time choir director they had, the minister of music, told me the only kind of music he permitted the choir to use was throwaway music. That was his term. It had to be written to catch the mood of the day so that he said if it is still good six months from now, it's no good. It has to be something that is so contemporary that it will catch the attention of the young people. And uh, I tried to reason with him, but he found me very rude because <laughs> I felt that uh, why not uh, throw away religion in the pulpit? That's the logic of his position. Well, they call television chewing gum for the mind, and he's got <laughs> chewing gum for the soul. Yeah, form of junk food. Yes. Well, I got another question for Sam. Uh, you know, over the past year, we've heard alarm coming from business leaders. We've heard alarm coming from uh, political leaders about the U.S. competitiveness slipping in the global market because of functional illiteracy in the workplace. Uh, do you think that those forces will have a positive effect on... Uh, on education somewhere down the road or are we in a gridlock situation because all that happens in the public school is that they draw their wagons in a circle and say give me more money and neither side seems to be getting anywhere oh you're absolutely right and and the the, uh, the tragedy is that the uh, business people really when they want to answers to the problems of education where do they go to you see the typical CEO thinks that if he goes to the top in the educational establishment, then he'll find out what the real problem is, and they'll tell him, and they'll solve the problem. So he goes to the head of the NEA, 
or he goes to the heads of the education establishment, and what do they do? They give him a song and dance and tell him, well, we need more money. Just give us more money and that will, oh, we, need, we have to restructure the schools, or we need smaller class size, or teachers need more salary, or we need a longer school day, or we need an all-year school program because the Japanese are so many days in school and we're 10 days less, and that sort of thing. So these business people are simply given the runaround. They say, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, what happens is that, uh, so the business people will go along with what the educators say. They'll, they'll raise more money for the schools. And of course, 10 years from now, the situation will be even worse. But by then, the ones who were running business then will have retired and a new group will be in and then they recycle the same excuses, the same that just say, you know, over again and you'd be surprised how you can keep fooling these people over and over and over again and when that doesn't work then they blame the family they say, well it's the breakdown of the family or it's the Vietnam War or it's the nuclear fallout or it's, uh, you know, they'll always find excuses but they will never talk about how they teach reading in the school yeah, but in the meantime, they're going bankrupt. Uh, you know, at some point, they got to say, this is not working. I mean, they can't wait 10 years. Uh, profits uh, and corporations are dropping like an anvil. Well, that's because, you see, the business people are really prepared for the future. Let me quote uh, 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 from a speech that was given in 1981 before 52 executives of the Northern Telecom Company by a Harvard professor, Anthony Ottinger. He said, quote, the present traditional concept of literacy has to do with the ability to read and write. But the real question that confronts us today is, how do we help citizens function well in their society? How can they acquire the skills necessary to solve their problems? Do we really want to teach people to do a lot of sums or write in a fine round hand when they have a $5 handheld calculator or a word processor to work with? Or do we really have to have everybody literate, writing and reading in the traditional sense, when we have the means through our technology to achieve a new flowering of oral communication? It is the traditional idea that says that certain forms of communication, such as comic books, are bad. But in the modern context of functionalism, they may not be all that bad, unquote. So here the professors are going to the business people and are saying, hey, we really, these people don't really have to learn to read and write. You know, we've got all these machines, we've got little calculators and all of that, and all they have to do is learn enough to be functional in your firm, you say. Now, I don't know to what extent they're swallowing this, this business of a new flowering of oral communication, which of course is rap music, you see, and um, comic books. I don't know of any parents who send their kids to school to learn to read comic books. You notice it says nothing about what parents want their children to learn. It's what do you as businessmen need for these kids to learn? Because we professors don't think it's necessary anymore. You see how skewed the whole situation is. Here's another quote. Two well-known reading researchers, Harmon and, S and Stick, said in 1987, quote, many companies have moved operations to places with cheap, relatively poorly educated labor. 
What may be crucial, they say, is the dependability of a labor force and how well it can be managed and trained, not its general educational level, although a small cadre of highly educated creative people is essential to innovation and growth. Ending discrimination and changing values are probably more important than reading and moving low-income families into the middle class, unquote. Mm -hmm. That's the thinking of the elite. All we have to do is educate a small elite that will do the innovating and the creative stuff, and you can keep the rest of the people down in the dumps. They don't have to move into the middle class, you see. Uh, just change their values. One of the reasons for the so-called Japanese miracle is the fact that the Japanese education is more along traditional lines. A heavy emphasis on content. The same is true in Korea and Taiwan. And uh, very definitely in Singapore, which is rapidly forging to the front as the industrial center of the world. The uh, Chinese have uh, a good educational approach, but no freedom for the students to apply it. And the same weakness has existed in the Soviet Union, where they have stressed content, but no freedom for the child. I recall... Uh, my uncle by marriage, his niece coming over from Soviet Armenia and expressing shock at the backwardness of the sciences in American high schools. And this was 20 years ago. And she felt that uh, the Stanford uh, program in physics, her field, was uh, like... Uh, a high school program. So that was a difference between the Soviet education and ours. Their failure was that once they graduated them, they had no freedom to work and to develop what they had learned. But they did have the content. Mm -hmm. Well, I remember I was shocked when I went overseas. I just graduated from high school maybe a year or so and went and my first uh, post, I was stationed in Austria. And I met a young fellow there who was a ham radio operator, one of my avocational interests. And uh, in the process of getting to know him, he told me that uh, uh, he had just completed high school and wanted to know how I like calculus. And I had to tell him, we don't get calculus in high school. We have to go to university as an undergraduate course. It's taught as an undergraduate course in university. And he says, oh, every kid that, you know, takes mathematics has to know calculus by the time they get out of high school. And this is in Austria, which is, you know, at that time uh, was considered, you know, fairly backward as far as educational opportunity in Europe was concerned. Uh, <clears throat> well, I went to a small town high school, Kingsburg, which was not accredited by UC because... It didn't have uh, certain uh, courses which were really fluff. The farmers insisted on the fundamentals. And calculus, trigonometry, everything like that was taught at that time. 
Uh, Douglas, here's another uh, item that, for this question of yours, what the business leaders are thinking. The Nestle Corporation uh, recently launched a campaign in the coupon clipping section of the Sunday newspaper with an ad which read, quote, 700,000 graduating seniors can't read this, but you should. (laughs) Now it goes on to say this. Today's students are tomorrow's leaders. The quality of their education will affect every aspect of our nation's future. We want our children to be the best and brightest in the world, but schools can't always afford the equipment and enhancements that are necessary for quality education. Nestle thinks it's time to get involved. Here's where we're starting and how you can help. Nestle is contributing $1,500,000 to the betterment of public education. On the next eight pages, you will find many of your favorites from the Nestle family. We'll donate a nickel for every coupon redeemed up to $500,000 to a number of schools across the country. Concerned parents and caring teachers are not enough. Quality education deserves everyone's support. Please join us. The future depends upon it. Unquote. That's businesses, uh, you know, contribution. Mm-hmm. Give them more money, you see. Well, it's, it's a token, really. Yeah. It's a token gesture. And this is 700,000 graduating seniors, not dropouts, can't read. I wanted to ask you, you know, regarding the Japanese longer school day, uh, in your opinion, is it more valuable to work smart for shorter hours or this long day thing that they claim success for? I've always felt that all the long day did was make more teacher openings for... Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think in the case of the Japanese, first of all, the Japanese language is more difficult to learn to read than ours. Uh, I know in the, in the case of the Chinese, I was told by one Chinese individual that it takes six years for a Chinese to accomplish in literacy what, what an English-speaking person can do in one year mm-hmm. with a phonetic system if they're taught phonetically. Of course, now our children are not taught phonetically, so they're not, they're not even reading as well as the Chinese who read a, an ideographic writing system. But the Japanese system is a combination of ideographs and sound symbols. They use a syllabary type of system. Uh, And it takes much longer for them to master their writing system than it does for us. So they need more time. And on top of that, of course, they're going in for much more difficult matter in in mathematics and the sciences. Uh, But we can do as much. uh, There is so much time now wasted in American public schools that they say that only about 45 minutes of, out of the entire day is even spent learning anything. And even there, you will find high schoolers telling you that they don't learn anything. In the colonial and early American eras, the common school held sessions annually for as little as six weeks to no more than three months and the teacher would rotate in a given area uh, within uh, horseback distance of his home, holding school at different places, different times of the year. Now, they learned uh, enough to be literate, as literate as Abraham Lincoln was, with three years of schooling, I believe, 
because it was a highly disciplined uh, curriculum. The children learned or else the hickory stick was literally freely used. So what happened when Horace Mann uh, socialized education was that the school year was lengthened and the curriculum over the generations progressively watered down so that even in my lifetime I've seen the switch from an eighth grade education being sufficient for any man to be successful in the business world and to be as well educated as a college trained man today if not better then with the depression they raised the mandatory school age to keep a lot of young people off the job market and further watered down the curriculum I remember how when I was a student in high school a tremendous number of uh, students coming back who were older than most but because of the new requirement they were back in school and uh, the watering down since World War II has been especially dramatic well it also created a lot more teaching positions too every, yes. every move they made it seems to me yes. created more teaching positions a bigger yes. bureaucracy yeah, as well, well go ahead I just want to say that they've also created a whole community college system. I was going to add that, yes. Yeah. And the purpose of the community college is to simply do what the high schools used to do, and they don't even do that very well either. It used to be that on the graduate school level, 20 years ago, there was still a high order of content. But now with the demand that minority group students be allowed to get their doctorates if they want them. The graduate school program has been so watered down that it is on a very low level. It's been turned into a shambles. It's a very expensive diploma mill that we can't afford anymore. Yes. Yes. It's well, a, go ahead. Yes, our time is just about up. Uh, do you want to sum things up in a minute or two? Sam. Well, American education is a royal mess, <laughs> and the only way that, uh, that things can be improved is for parents to take matters into their own hands. If they want their children to get a decent education, they've got to either homeschool them or put them in, in, uh, into Christian schools that they can rely on, that they have confidence in. Thank you very much, Sam, and we'll look forward to your return and we're very proud to have you as a Calcedon scholar and we appreciate the tremendous work you do and the uh, travels you subject yourself to you're <laughs> all over the United States there are very few people on our mailing list who have not encountered you in their neighborhood and uh, have been delighted with hearing you speak well thank you very much Rush. Mm -hmm. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by Christrules.com.